My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, Stakuya here, and I just wanted to announce before you actually listen to this podcast that, well, thank you for listening in the first place, but we are going to be starting something brand new, and that is going to be introducing additional bonus episodes directly onto Patreon. Now, if you were already a patron, then the bonuses that you've been getting in the first place are a ad-free experience, and simultaneously you get early access to episodes. But I figured that that's not enough, and I want to reward the people who have been helping to support me create content for all of you. So what I am doing is, in addition to the content that I am releasing on Apple and on Spotify and other podcasting platforms, I'm going to be releasing additional episodes to Patreon. And for those of you who may be wondering how much this is going to cost, simply a dollar. There are many different tiers that provide a different amount of bonuses for whatever it is that you may want that are on my Patreon, but what I'm going to be doing is giving free access to anyone that simply becomes a dollar patron. Once more, I thank you all for your support, and now I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you very much. Hello everyone, Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. How are you doing here today? Even though I know none of you can really respond to me. We're actually doing a little bit better ourselves. Uh, in case you hear anything in the background, just please note that uh, I do apologize. We are actually currently recording this at a bed and breakfast because we are on vacation. I say vacation, but we've spent the entire time basically working and doing different recordings. We're not working at home today, which is great. Yes, so at least there's that. We don't have a two-year-old that is uh, yelling at us about things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, at least there's that. But since we're on vacation, I figured that one of the requests that we had was to talk about some badasses. And what's better than going to the beach on vacation? Well, probably, probably going to the mountains yeah. and stuff like that here. But either way, the beach means the ocean. The ocean means sea travel and sea travel and badasses now that equals thomas cochran okay this is a really weird tan like no, it's not even a tangent what would it be uh, a lead-in it was just a really weird introduction honestly yeah well you know what that doesn't matter because the list of british naval heroes now that that is a really long a really illustrious one it includes people like sir francis drake like remember the uncharted games Yes. We hear where well, that's what like Sir Francis Drake. That's kind of what it's based off of there. You got Nelson, Rodney. You got Hood. Robin Hood. No, no. Uh, like Admiral, like Hood. Like okay, remember how there's like the HMS Hood? That that's a big ship. And okay, you probably don't know for here, but that's a, that's another ship that's in the British Navy, and it's a really big deal, and it's named after Hood. So Thomas, you may ask, now who's this? Who's Thomas? We already covered it, Timothy. Though Timothy Dexter was a completely different person for here, definitely not a badass, but I mean, maybe he kind of was? In his own special way, I think he was. Okay, well, maybe in his own special way, but Thomas Cochran is a absolutely huge figure in, like, in British history. 
And so I wanted to go ahead and talk about him, and I wanted to tell his story. So Thomas Cochrane was the son of a minor Scottish aristocrat, and although his father was this, how should I put this, an inventor? Like, he made all these different weird, wonderful inventions, but it was never anything that was really successful. His family's background overall, though, was one of distinguished military service, and he was born in Ansfield in South Lancashire on the 14th of December in 1775. Thomas spent much of his early life roaming around the family's estates in Chloros Fife. So, he was a Scotsman at the time here when Scotland was, I mean, it had, it was integrated into the United Kingdom. Like, it was Great Britain. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I love Scotland. Well, I know you do. I know you do. You, you have seen the, the pictures of it and you think it's really pretty. Well, I would like to live there. Actually, no, some of the countryside villas and things like that are really good. So, he had a later start in his military career. I say later start, but he started really at the age of 17 in 1793 at the outbreak of the Revolutionary Wars in France. So, not America, because he was born in 1775, but he started his military career in 1793 at the age of 17 when France was going through its whole um, uh, chopping off people's heads and deposing the monarchy and that kind of thing. That happened around the Re American Revolution? Well, I mean, it was shortly after, like, within, you know, I didn't a think decade or so. Close. That's crazy. No, it's actually, we could do a whole podcast on that in and of itself, but basically the short of it is that the American Revolution is one of the things that directly tied into the French Revolution because the French basically helped to bankroll the, the beginning of the United States during the rebellion, and that in turn, like, France was already in a bad financial position, but that bankrupted them, basically. Why did they help? To screw over Britain. Spite. Yes. No, I'm not even... That's literally why you would do it. You, you would... Maybe I'm more French than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, that's really the reality of it. So, he joined his uncle, Captain Alexander Cochran, aboard the HMS Hind at that time. But before, Cochran had been listed as a like, crew member on naval boats since he was five years old. Like, he was literally a member of the Navy since he was five. And that's this illegal tactic that was done by some people in order to try and boost their military record. It's basically saying, like, um, like, like you, if you were going to apply for a job and you took all of your time in your statistics class and you were applying to then be, uh, I don't know, an account or something, and you just said, ah, oh, yes, I've been working with these figures for the past five years and it's like no you were literally in school you don't have an actual apprenticeship or a job or anything it's just that was your education i don't think you can hold that against him since he was the one that put himself on there at the age of five yeah but the officers are wait wait oh he didn't put himself on at the know, age of five his saying. uncle he did. didn't do it so like it's not his fault well yeah i know that but this is still something it was a it was a common thing that was done and it was easily a, a very clear case of corruption but ironically enough that's not going to be the first one that you earned that first one it's not going to be the last one that you hear about today the british military system and all kinds of others around the world they were rife with it so as an example officers in the army often bought their commission like you bought the position of being an officer even if you had no skill or understanding of combat whatsoever and then they would use their ledger roles that would state that they had more soldiers than they actually did and then not report dead soldiers in order to pocket those men's pay. 
So basically, if a guy died at the beginning of a conflict, a leader might just not report it for the full year and then just say that he died in the end instead so he could pocket like three or four months worth of that person's pay. Were there rules against it? Oh, yeah, of course. It's, it's firm corruption. Like, that is major corruption, and that's just what was happening. People just did it. Like, you gotta think, this is before the age of digital records and all this other stuff here, so they would just do that. That's just kind of what would happen. So, two years later, Cochrane was appointed acting lieutenant on the ship, the Thetis, and remained there until 1798. Cochrane developed this very self-sufficient, independent personality, and he never failed to just piss people off. That's just what he was. He was... You know how I can be very blunt and straightforward and to the point with people here, even when I should probably be a bit more tactful? Yes. That's that's pretty much what he did. Like, he was... <laughs> yeah. He, he If he believed that something was righteous or true or anything, he was a he was a goddamn bull that would just charge through any china shop to get there. That's, that's just what he was. So he received a court-martial for showing disrespect to a fellow first lieutenant, but the trial was hurried along as they needed to really get out to sea, and Cochrane received just a warning at the time to avoid flippancy. I can tell you this right now, that did not happen. <laughs> he most certainly did not avoid it. I would be flippant of the warning to avoid flippancy if anyone ever tried to do that to me. So I understand. Oh yeah, yeah, no. Remember how, remember that, that classic thing of it's like, oh, if you're arguing with your wife and you tell her, it's like, okay, the, the easiest thing to do when she's starting to go wild is to just tell her, hey, calm down. Like, that's the, it's, it's just the smartest thing that you can do. It really is. Yeah, you should follow that advice. That was Cochrane, but telling him, don't be flippant. <laughs> that really was. So... The young Cochrane soon established a reputation for success and daring in his naval career. He earned recognition when in 1800 he was given the command of a ship called the Speedy. Which, yeah, no, this was actually very speedy, like the name fit. Because it was this really small, about 158-ton vessel, which that sounds huge. But in reality, for a ship, like for a ship of war, that's not big at all. So... It was crammed with 90 officers and other personnel, and it only had, like, what, 14 guns, I think? Which, for again, for a warship, that is not a lot at all. But he captured the Spanish ship El Gamo in 1801, and the conquest of El Gamo was very unusual, is that the odds were very stacked against the Speedy. The Spanish ship was six times the size of his vessel and had three times as many men. Like, it was huge. But what he did was by flying in an American flag, Cochrane managed to get close to the, uh, like get the Speedy closer so that once you were close enough, because this is a really big ship, they couldn't angle their guns. Like, you got to think, this is not, it, it's not like you can just turn a cannon super down or anything like that. So if, if it's up a certain height, it only has a certain angle up and down that it can go. So if he gets close enough, they literally can't hit him because he's too close. Like, it just, it just won't work. So, he came in really close, and they couldn't fire, so they only had one option, to try and board him. But when he pulled up close, and they prepared to board, they tried to capture him, he just whoosh, turned his vehicle, like, the vehicle, he turned his ship away so that they couldn't board him, so they missed, and they couldn't do anything. And he just spent time teasing him, and then shooting the other ship, because it couldn't do anything. And then, once he shot him for a bit, then... They just boarded them themselves. Mind you, they have three times less men. They have so many 
fewer guys, and they storm the enemy ship and just take it. I would like to see it. Yeah, no, I, I, is there actually a film of it? I don't know if they actually show a film of this or something like it is happening. Is it a movie? Yeah. We gotta look that up, because I think it would be a really fun one to cover for it here. It's just, it's just really good. But the funny thing about this was it was so successful with so few casualties that the biggest trouble that they had was transporting the large number of Spanish prisoners on the Speedy. Because, mind you, it had three times as many men. This is a small ship. They're not taking over the other ship necessarily for it. It's like they, they had to transport all the prisoners back. And they didn't have nearly as many uh, as many men to guard it. But uh, th th that's, that's besides the point. After a long delay, Cochrane was rewarded and allowed to post rank. Apparently, naval authorities were really unsure about the small number of casualties in the operation, like whether or not it warranted rec was, uh, like recognition. But Cochrane was pissed off by this. He noted that another one of his peers had been made an earl in a naval incident that involved even fewer casualties. And such remarks really, they, they didn't really help him. Like, this is one of those things that he would do something that is like, yeah, this is great. And the, and the, like, the admiralty would then go, you know what, that was pretty good, but I don't know if it was as good as what you think it was. And so we're just, we're just not really going to reward you. But we're going to give you something, but it's not what you think you deserve. And that he would just go on these rages against them because of it, which in turn would piss them off even more, making them less likely to give him stuff. So yeah, that that's a recurrent theme through this whole thing, just as a heads up. In 15 months, Cochrane had collected more than 50 prizes, so he captured over 50 ships with the conquest of the Speedy. While captaining the ship, Cochrane managed to capture a Spanish frigate with, like, again, very low casualties. Only three of his men were killed and 18 injured. He was later captured by the French, but he was exchanged, so he got ransomed away, receiving his freedom and becoming promoted to post-captain. And so during this short period of peace in 1802, Cochrane, he went off to study at University of Edinburgh, and in 1803, the Navy ordered him to Plymouth, and there he was supposed to captain the ship called the Arab, which was being refitted for war. Cochrane found the vessel to be completely useless for the role. Like, he hated this thing. And so he wrote a letter to the Admiralty expressing uh, his <laughs> displeasure. He was soon sent to protect the coastal fisheries near Orkney, which was an assignment that lasted 15 months. Cochrane suspected that the Admiralty was giving him uh, a show of their displeasure. Do you know why? Why? There were no fisheries to protect in this area. So what did they make him... What was he doing? That's kind of the point. He was a man of action. He wanted to just kind of do things. And so he hated that they were giving him these stupid ships. They weren't like true great warships. He was this amazing leader. And they just, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything. So when he complained, they said, okay, you know, you know, here, here, here. Take your ship and go guard these fisheries. Goes to the area. There's no fisheries. He's just supposed to sit there and guard nothing, basically, for 15 months. But they paid him? I mean, yeah, they paid him, but that's not really where captains made their money. You see, at this time, the primary means by which captains and other, you know, men, like, where they made their money was through capturing other ships. So captains would get a percentage, like, a large percentage of the booty of, like, what it is they captured. So when you would capture an enemy ship, the ship, you would take it home, like, to your nation— and you would sell it. 
We could sell it to merchants, sell it to all different kinds of groups, and the captain would get prize money from this. That's what they would do. So you could make a stupid fortune from this. It was also, you know, risky because you're literally fighting people to steal their ships. That's that's pretty much the thing that would happen. So that th this is in war as a full-fledged captain, but this was a very common thing that was done with privateers. So remember if you heard the term like like privateers that became pirates and that kind of thing? That's that's really what it is. So, yeah. But that's really of no matter for Cochrane. Okay, so he was, by nature, a very supreme idealist who didn't really hesitate for a moment to point out all the problems in his superiors and the system, and he argued for justice, it, at least how he saw it. Like, again, this is, this is all very subjective, and it's what he did and believed in, which was just kind of the thing. Um, so you're going to see many examples of it. We've already shown some, and he, it, there's just going to be more here in the future. So as a result, it was not until 1804 when a change in the government administration brought in a man by the name of Henry Dundas, who was the first Viscount of Melville and a fellow Scot to Whitehall. So Cochrane was then finally given the freshly built frigate, the Palace, which was a 32-gun frigate and had free reign to patrol the North Atlantic convoy route near the Azores. And if you don't remember where the Azores are, that's uh, the series of islands that are in between Europe and the Americas. The Portuguese owned these and had used them at staging points for literally centuries. That's all the way back for when America was initially being explored. That's what they were using. And so within two months of this, Cochrane had seized such a vast amount of enemy shipping and cargo that he alone had earned 75,000 pounds sterling in prize money and returned to Portsmouth with five-foot-tall candlesticks made of solid gold strapped to the mastheads. Cochrane's later raids on the Biscay coast caused Napoleon to label him the Loup de Mer, or the Sea Wolf, and raised his reputation among the British Republic to a stupid height. Like, he would spend the next few years at sea protecting coastal areas from enemies and raiding at, at Fort Trinidad in, at Rosas it, for 12 days with a rather small force that was under his command. And at this point, the man was famous. And like any ambitious British noble, that meant that it was time to run for Parliament. So in 1806, Cochrane stood for election to the House of Commons for the borough of Honiton, or Honiton. I'm actually not sure how I would say that. He aimed for parliamentary reform, and this borough that he was coming from was famous for bribery. Like, again, it was not a place that was um, well ran or done, and that's exactly what Cochrane was against. In the first election, he lost. But the second, he won. And he strived onwards, campaigning for parliamentary reform alongside his fellow radicals like Sir Francis Burdett. He openly criticized the British conduct in the war and the corruption in the Navy. And yeah, yeah, basically you got this war here that's going around just shit-talking everyone that's actually leading the war. And that did not make people happy. Like, he made a lot of enemies over the course of his years because as good as he was as a military commander, and you've probably already seen this, he was not a diplomat. He was not. He just didn't have, like, I don't know, the grace. No, the not at all. Smooth-talking ability that you need. Yeah. For government. No. You would be a great politician. Wait, you think I would? Yeah, you're really good with words. I think you would be able to charm everyone, and even those who hate you... You can full circle around them. 
which is great because I can't do that. It's okay. You can attack their weak spots. I know you. Well, yeah, but you don't want to attack weak spots if you're trying to run for office. Wait, that's exactly what people do nowadays and attack ads. Yeah, but that's just mudslinging, and it's not nice. Of course it's not nice, but for some people it doesn't. So, in 1809, Cochrane was given charge by Admiral Gambier to lead the British naval force in the Bay of Biscay to burn the French fleet that was blockaded in Ike's Roads. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Cochrane was able to destroy four of the French ships, but was unable to get additional assistance from Gambier, who was stationed miles from the scene of action. Cochrane, who held that he would have been able to effectively destroy the French fleet, had Gambier been closer, protested the official honor that was bestowed upon Gambier by the Parliament. Though Cochrane had been knighted for his effort at Ike's Roads, he demanded that Gambier, instead of being honored, be given a court-martial for the way that he handled the destruction of the French fleet. The request for a court-martial was, um, not well-received, because, mind you, they're just rewarding this guy for being awesome, and then you have this hotshot that's been causing you problems for years, complaining and bitching and moaning to people, going up and saying, No! No! He doesn't deserve an honor! He should be court-martialed! And it's like, yeah, he, he's stepping on the political toes very roughly. As we've established, he had a history of irking the government with constant calls for parliamentary reform, uh, for removing corruption with the Navy. So the establishment within the Navy was not happy. The Admiralty acquitted Gambier, and in a blow to Cochrane's naval career, they prevented him from obtaining any further naval commands, so that he just he wasn't allowed to do anything for a few years. Cochrane was discredited and then received only half of his normal pay. That's that's just what happened to him. That's not cool. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of what I happens. Mean, everything he was asking for were not bad things. He actually wanted to make change for the better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of see why some of the things kind of make sense as to where people could be a bit hesitant with him for stuff. Like, one of these comes with an actual military idea, and the other comes with what he did personally. In fact, there's something very ironic that we're going to be covering here later on. But rather than Stu, Cochrane was still trying to figure out how he could break the French fleet and fortifications that were built up all along the coast in order to free up British resources. And so he proposed a solution to Prince George. Now, mind you, the background of this is that the British, their greatest strength was always their navy. I say always their navy. For many, many centuries, it was their navy. And so they were blockading France, not allowing any French ships to get out, which would in turn break the country economically. That's the point of what they were trying to do. So the siege... Basically, it was a siege. That's what a blockade is, but by ocean, by navy. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So they were doing this, but if you're trying to blockade an entire country, that's using a lot of ships and a lot of resources. So if you can destroy the enemy's fleet, you don't have to worry about blockading them with nearly the same amount of troops, or, sorry, troops, sailors, force, 
you don't need nearly as many ships, basically. Manpower. Yeah. You don't need nearly as much manpower, resources, other things to stop them, so that would reduce your own burden. So he, he was trying to figure out ways to, to break that. So he presented this thing to Prince George, who was uh, the Prince Regent in 1812. Cochrane modified the design of the original explosion ship, which, mind you, do you know what a fire ship is? No. Okay, so a fire ship is a derelict hull. It is a it is a ship that you've hollowed out, you've filled with straw, oil, charcoal, all kinds of flammable things, and you sail the ship towards an enemy position, and then you rig it up to keep going in a straight line, and then you have your men abandon ship, and you light it on fire. And that is a fire ship. So it's a Viking funeral ship without um, there's no logic to it. Yeah, it's it's the ancient car bomb, but a car bomb designed to go literally into an enemy ship. So they would use these smaller vessels typically and send them into like fortifications or bigger enemy ships because if you can build a small little ship have it set up to explode and ram it into a massive enemy warship that uses a lot of resources to make and then blow it up that's kind of the point like you would be able to do some really good stuff with that so what he did was modify it for each temporary mortar a hulk rather than just a rigged vessel was to be used the decks would be removed and an inner shell would be constructed of heavy timbers and braced strongly to the hull in the bottom of the shell would be layered a layer of clay into which you'd put things like obsolete ordnance, so stuff that wasn't really explosive anymore, but it was a bunch of twisted metal bits that, when it exploded, they may not explode, but it's going to be shrapnel, basically. So that's what they would do. I was just about, I was literally thinking about shrapnel and like, yeah, of course. Yeah, so imagine if you had a bunch of old dud shells that weren't going to explode anymore, but you're like, well, if I still launched this at like, 600 miles an hour heading in your direction if it hits you it's still gonna it's still gonna hurt so that's kind of the point of what they would do the charge in the form of a thick layer of powder would be placed next and above that would be laid rows and rows of explosive shells and animal carcasses explain oh we're gonna get to that yeah cause that one is that's the deliciously evil part of this whole plan the explosion ship would then be towed in place to the appropriate distance from an anchored enemy ship and would be healed to a correct angle by means of adjustment in the ballast. And then what they would do is they would launch it. When detonated, the immense mortar would blast its lethal load in a lofty arc, causing it to spread out over a wide area and to fall on the enemy in a just absolute torrent of hellfire and shrapnel, and noxious gas. Which, yeah, you were asking about what is the point of the animal carcasses. Imagine if you put a bunch of rotting, dead animals on a ship, and then you had it explode. Do you have any idea just how disgustingly awful that would be in terms of the smell? And in terms of, like, just, it would physically make you sick, just being I in the presence. I feel like you're already bombing them. Why on earth did he have to add that aspect? That's the point. So they estimated that what this would have done is saturate a half-mile square area with around 6,000 missiles with enough destructive force to cripple any French squadron, even if it lay within, like, an enclosed anchorage. 
The follow-up to the explosion ship or temporary mortar would be an attack on the land fortifications once again using the hulls. As before, clay would be used to line the hull, and the upper deck would remain intact so that it could be covered with a layer of charcoal, then with an amount of sulfur, and then I think that would be equal to about one-fifth the volume of the fuel. It was intended to float or sorry, it was it was intended to float such a potential stink vessel up against a shore battery or fortification that when the bl- the wind was blowing, you know how it doesn't blow out to sea, it blows inward to land, that this would help to ignite the charcoal. And then the, resist- cl- uh, the resultant clouds of what he termed noxious effluvia, which, I mean, that's just the thing that he called it, these were expected to just completely purge all opposition on the land because you're literally using chemical warfare to try and drive the enemy away. This was mustard gas before mustard gas was a thing. He was breaking the Geneva Conventions before the Geneva Conventions were a thing. Well, you know, basically. And that's one of the the of the arguments that is cited in here later for why they... Well, you know, I'm not going to spoil it. We're, we're going to get to that in literally just a second here. This would then be followed by a quick landing of British Marines who could then secure an otherwise unobtainable position and clear the way for an establishment of a beachhead. In the end, after review, his ideas were regarded as having merit but they were rejected. And I might wonder, like, why would you, this be rejected? This sounds like an awesome, very effective way. It's a very useful tool to be done. The gas. No, they did not care about that. They didn't care about what happened to the French. That didn't matter. What mattered was if they used this on the enemy, the enemy might use it on them too. It's a new technology. It's a new war tactic. And that is not something that they wanted to have become a thing, basically. Because whatever it is that they did could, again, easily be turned against them. It's not like it was a secret patent that only they would know about. Like, someone else could kind of develop this technique and use it against them. So they didn't want to give anyone ideas. Ironically, the idea would come up multiple times over the course of a few decades. Especially going into the Crimean War. But, undaunted by his failure, Cochrane continued to speak out against naval corruption fueled by his experience. While still serving in Parliament, he was implicated in a stock exchange scandal in 1814. So what Cochrane and several others were accused of doing was driving up the stocks, like driving up the stock exchange by propagating a false rumor that Napoleon had been defeated and overthrown. And mind you, this is 1814, not 1815, which would, again, this would literally happen just a year later. They were suspected of taking advantage of the resultant stock boom to gross a profit of around 10,000 English pounds. Although the other two men were generally believed to be guilty, Cochrane was considered innocent by some of his constituents. But, nevertheless, he was sentenced to imprisonment for a year, he lost his knighthood, and he was fined a thousand English pounds. In addition, Cochrane was removed from the Navy lists, he was expelled from Parliament, and he was forced to give up his title. When he was briefly re-elected to represent Westminster in 1815, Cochrane actually escaped jail and appeared in the House. He was soon returned to prison and then forced to serve the remainder of his sentence and required to pay an additional fine. You called it Westminster, and why would you do that? Why not? It's Westminster. 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 Oh, I don't know. Stop saying it. Westminster. Just to Westminster. Westminster. It's not West. It's Weast. As SpongeBob kindly put it. Continue. <laughs> So it's still debated to this day, like, whether or not he really was guilty. 
But later writers, from what I could gather, because I was really looking into this, trying to find, like, okay, did he actually do this? Like, what was going on here? From reviewing the court cases, it he might have been guilty of something. At the very least, he wasn't completely innocent. But in the end, there has got to be some serious irony here. Like, you got to think. We talked about how he did all of this stuff crusading against corruption and all this kind of stuff for here and then in the end he was implicated on literally just stock fraud yeah but no one ever let him actually change anything so i guess he might as well join him if he can't beat him join him we all say it come on am i wrong don't answer that continue (laughs) so okay at this point he can't do anything with the british but he really wants to continue his naval career so what he does is he moves to south america Oh, I was really hoping he was going to join the French. Oh, no, that would have been some serious irony for it there, but no, the, no matter how much the British screw him over, he still hates the French more. Ugh. <laughs> That's pretty much the British way in the first place. So when he went to South America, he became an admiral of the small Chilean naval force. He played a major role in various initiatives, which led to the eventual liberation of both Chile and Peru from Spanish control. In 1817, Cochrane assisted Chile in its war against Spain, including capturing the stronghold of Valdivia and its 15 forts. He also captured the Spanish ship Esmeralda in uh, Calayo Harbor. The victories that Cochrane achieved among the Spanish-American coastline broke Spanish control of the region and actually led to the independence of Chile and Peru. So in 1823, Cochrane commanded the Brazilian Navy in its struggle for independence from Portugal, using his characteristic surprise tactics he was actually able to destroy several portuguese transports by anticipating its next move cochran was able to prevent the portuguese convoy from landing at the at the port of maranjao between 1823 and 1825 he assisted the brazilian government to make the transition to a newly won well independent state his service was honored when several latin american navies named their ship the amarante cochrane so he, they, they loved him. He was a hero to South America. But he left in 1825 when he was asked to command the newly assembled Greek Navy. At the time, Greece or the, 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 the powers within Greece, they were trying to get independence from the Ottoman Empire. Despite his efforts, infighting and lack of personnel plagued the Greeks. In addition, supplies were very slow in getting there, especially steamships that Cochrane really needed in order to attack the Turks during the siege of the Acropolis at Athens. He realized that steamships would provide an immeasurable advantage in the narrow waters, because in comparison to the big bulky ships that were using, you know, wind power, you could maneuver these pretty much any way you wanted to without having to worry about wind direction if it was a steamship. And at one point, naval personnel could not be paid because, again, Honestly, oh my god, this is so topical for it here, for Greece and not having money. Oh no, is that like a common thing for Greece to not have money? Yeah, there's a lot of debt crisis jokes to just make here. So that's just happened a lot. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the same thing happened with the American Revolution when we were trying to get free again. They, there was no money to pay the, the soldiers, they just printed money. any way they could just stop being mad at, you know, having fun? I mean, that welcome to humanity, that's pretty much something that happens. So these guys then refused to serve unless wages were promised. Cochrane was unable to get the men to commit any service without pay in advance. He later called the collective Greek seamen the greatest cowards I have ever met with. 
Cochrane was never paid for his service to the Greeks, though his name was associated with the failure to build a strong navy. Cochrane left Greece very frustrated, naturally, with the delays in obtaining supplies and the poor infrastructure. Because it's just like they weren't doing anything to help him. If they just gave him everything that he wanted, he would have dominated. But no, they just, they didn't. Now, in 1828, he did return back to Britain and began to lobby for a return to his naval career. He was pardoned in 1832 and reinstated in the Navy. In 1832, he received his father's title and became the 10th Earl of Dunadald. Dunadald? Dundunald. Dundunald. How did I say that? Dundunald. Dundunald. That's a fairly odd parents reference in case you didn't get it. I don't get it. So, between 1848 and 1851, he commanded the American and West Indies stations, and he was promoted to Admiral in 1851, and then a Rear Admiral in 1854. Now, in 1853, as the possibility of war in Crimea increased, Cochrane proposed to the Admiralty that they use that explosion ship that he had provided before in order to sink vessels at Sevastopol on the Black Sea, or in the Baltic at Kronstadt, as, you know, a means of destroying the Russian entrenchments. The idea was very quickly dismissed, because again, they didn't want to run the risk of someone else using it. But the next year brought certainty of war, and Cochrane, who was then 79 years old, was considered for placement as the commander-in-chief of the Baltic fleet. The fact that he was passed over, because they didn't let him, was not actually due to his advanced age. Graham explained in a letter to Queen Victoria that Prime Minister George Aberdeen and his cabinet feared that Cochrane would and I quote, his adventurous spirit would lead him to perform some desperate enterprise, which might complicate the difficult international situation. <laughs> which, if, you, if you've been listening to this so far, and you've heard everything that Cochrane has done, and how he has held himself, yes, that is entirely accurate. He would more than likely create an international incident very quickly. So in July of 1854, Cochrane urged Graham to employ his patent stink vessels to route the Russian troops away from the fortifications on the harbor at Kronstadt so that a British landing could be made and the enemy's guns manned and turned on the Russian ships anchored beneath the batteries. He even offered his services as a consultant to accompany Sir Charles Napier, who had been given charge of the British fleet. Once more, however, the scheme was rejected. Cochrane supported Napier's efforts publicly but privately, okay, th this is this is a whole thing. So Na he supported this guy in public, right? Just letting him know, like, oh, you know, I'm totally behind you. I'm totally behind you. Yeah, the way that you're running and operating things here, totally fine. You know, really playing out like a politician. But then what he was doing is he was going to the newspapers in Britain and just saying, like, ah, yes, yes, don't worry. We have this super plan, a new weapon that will completely break the enemy fleet. And then it wasn't being used. So this whole time, like, he's trying to publicly support the Admiralty. So he's actually kind of learning. But then at the same time, he is just pushing really hard for the public to want to use the weapon. Again, like, the public actually supported, in the end, using this. They wanted to do it. But the Admiralty was just like, uh, no, we, we, we really can't do this. We really can't do this. <laughs> it just it wouldn't work. So again, public support increased for the using the weapon, and it was even suggested that they just raise private funds in order to equip the Admiral with the resources that he needed to get the job done independently. Like, screw whatever, you know, the government wants, we'll just raise private funds and do it ourselves. 
<laughs> Throughout the debate, the details of the scheme remained secret. In the boardroom at the Admiralty, the plan showed the stink vessels with layers of coke and sulfur ready to emit their choking fog. And added to the scheme, however, was the intention to create a smoke screen by burning barrels of tar or pouring naphtha, which is like this, um, think of it like proto-gasoline. It's um, almost like Greek fire. And they would pour that onto the surface of the harbor and ignite it with potassium. Like there was a lot of, yo, know, there was a lot of chemical warfare that was being prepped from this. Cochrane figured that just a few hours of doing this would accomplish what months of debilitating conventional warfare had failed to achieve. But the government was getting close to actually allowing it when Sevastopol was taken in September of 1855, followed soon by the war ending. All the discussion of using this weapon that he developed and everything, just completely off the table. There, It was sealed away in confidential reports and locked away for almost 50 years. Actually, no, wait, above 50 years? Yeah, technically I think it's above 50 years because... Did they ever use it? No. Sorry. They never did it. And I think the records of it were uncovered in 1908. And there's just some serious irony that this is what they were planning because within the next decade after the plans were revealed, chemical warfare was really used on a wide scale with mustard gas in World War I. Like, that, that's when that is. So, Sir Thomas Cochran, the 10th Earl of Dundonald, died on October 31st, 1860. His secret plans remained secure until 1908. But other than that, there was nothing more for him. His plans never got used. And I don't think... He, he was an admiral, though, so that's pretty badass. Oh, you know, he was still a total badass. He still got recognition. It's just this kind of funny thing of he spent his whole life pretty much chasing fame and glory. But more than fame and glory, he, there was a lot of stuff with money. And that's one of the reasons why people really think that more than likely he was involved in some of the case of the stock fraud because he was always, always, always trying to get riches. Which, from the way that he grew up, it wasn't that he was inherently greedy necessarily, but I guess he was kind of bad with money, so he always needed more of it. And then on top of that, uh, he, he needed stuff for like, you know, because his father was never really successful and uh, as an inventor and that kind of thing. So he needed money. He needed to secure things for himself and his family. So he was always, always after that fortune. Makes a lot of sense. In the end, Cochrane was a hero. Like, to this day, even if some of the stuff is, like, exaggerated, especially the stuff in his autobiography, people, his autobiography was used for the, like, British Navy for many, 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 many years. To this day, it's still considered a classic. But when you do in-depth analyses of it, it's a lot of the stuff is just exaggerations because it really is him trying to cement his own legacy of talking about how great he is and how crappy the Admiralty was and these other figures that he was throwing under the bus. And that's understandable. That's just how it is. But that's his story. Honestly, really is one of the most badass naval officers to ever exist. Also, thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. And I will see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening, my host. Bye-bye.